Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, you may be seated. Thank you for gathering today. It is such a a joy to gather and to sing praises to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are going to look to Him in His Word this morning from the first letter of Peter. You can turn, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Peter. Um, It's a blessed text. It's meant to woo and to wow us this morning. Uh, but before we take off, just let me take a, just a few more moments just, just to kind of let you get to know me a little bit. Um, it's, it's good for you to know who I am, just so you can understand who it is who's speaking to you. Um, as David said, I am uh, the pastor of student ministries at uh, uh, Grace Bible Church. It's been there for four years now. It's amazing how time flies when you're no longer 25. Um, I actually live really close by here, like I live over on the other side of Polo, like this is the best commute I've ever had in my entire life. It's great, so thank you for that. Um, I have, yes, one lovely wife, and I have uh, three mostly lovely children. Um, Yeah, we're outnumbered now. Juliet is six, Jane is four, and Andrew is one and a half. Uh, But it's a blessing to have those three. and uh, I've always kind of thought that God has a sense of humor, um, kind of particularly in how he has directed my life. I often joke that I kind of have backed into God's will more than I've actually walked into God's will. As a kid, I grew up in a pastor's home in Minnesota, middle of Minnesota, um, and there were two occupations that I said, I'm never doing those two things, never. I'm never going to be a paramedic, and I'm never going to be a pastor. And the the reason for that was very, very simple. My dad was a pastor, and my older brother was a paramedic. And I saw what they went through, and I saw the kind of things they had to experience and see, and like, no, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to do anything but that. Um, Long story short, I paid my way through uh, Bible school on an ambulance, and God has a sense of humor. And all of that is to say, I don't know about you, but I find that God has brought me where I am through a very strange conglomeration of events. And if I was to look back kind of at my life and and kind of try to anticipate what he was doing in my life, I would never have guessed that I would have been brought here. Maybe you feel that way too, right? As I was watching the turn-by-turn directions, I didn't ever see this destination coming my way. And our text in 1 Peter is sort of like that. Peter puts two things next to each other, side-by-side, that you would never think should go together. These don't belong together. They don't belong in the same sentence. They don't belong in the same room. But here he puts them right by each other. We're going to read 1 Peter 1, 3, all the way through 12. We're only going to be in the first few verses, but I want to read the whole thing because this is just one big, glorious, wow-packed passage. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through, which, uh, through those who preach to you the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels, angels long to look. Let's pray really quick. Dear Jesus, we come to you wanting to be fed from your word and, and helped and strengthened for the day ahead. We pray that you would prepare us to go forth from here with boldness, with courage, but with fresh joy and fresh love for you, and joy in the greatness of your salvation that you have given to us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Did you notice, in, in our passage, there are two things that just don't seem to go together. They go together like orange juice and toothpaste. They go together like flip-flops and wet cement. They go together like sunbathing and fire ants. They go together like sunshine and schoolwork. These two things do not go together, but we see there in, in verse 3 and verse 6, we see grievous, fiery, burning trials. And we see rejoicing. Fire and joy. Fire and rejoicing. Now, Peter doesn't have some sort of a, a martyr's complex. He isn't either a trial denier. He isn't whitewashing over these things. He's not saying to you, hey, just tough up, get through it, get past it, it'll be okay, don't worry about it. And he's not also offering you some sort of a get-out-of-trial-free card, right? Like, come on, just take this medicine and you'll have no more problems in your entire life. No, trials in the Christian life are real. They are present or they will come. 2 Timothy 3.12, about that. And 
1 Peter 4.12 says they will hurt. They will be burning. They will be fiery trials. They will not be pleasant. But Peter puts these two things together, this rejoicing in this fiery trial, because he sees life as you need to see life this morning. He sees life with spiritual perspective. This is, this is what we're after this morning. We want to go from here and see life with spiritual perspective. This is something very similar to what Paul sees life with. We see an evidence of this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He has real trials and hurts and pains in his life because he follows Christ. But how does he describe those things in 2 Corinthians? He says, compared to the glory of heaven and the glory building up for me, these are light. These are momentary. Also, like he says in Romans 8, 18, these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We really need, we really need the way Peter starts his letter. You really need the way Peter starts his letter. I really need this in my life, in my mind, in my heart. I need the way he lives and thinks, if I am going to be of any earthly good in this life. Or let me, let me say it this way. You do not need the absence of trials in your life. You do not need the absence of trouble in your life to see spiritual good. You need the presence of trials, even fiery, hot ones, to be of earthly good in this world that we live in. The Bible actually tells us this. It says, there are some lessons in life you cannot learn unless you undergo some pain. Don't ask me, ask the psalmist. Psalm 119.71 says this, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And don't ask me, ask Charles Spurgeon who says this, read a truth in tranquility, read it in peace, read it in prosperity, and you will not make anything of it. But... Put it inside a furnace, and you will then be able to spell all the hard words and understand more than you could without it. You ever read your Bible in tough times, in trial, and the words seem to float up from the pages at you? I I remember the spot in my Bible Psalm 146, reading it beside the deathbed of my older brother, and it floated. It was marvelous. It was amazing. And yet I was sobbing. Now, this doesn't mean trials and troubles will automatically do you good. They only do you spiritually good if you have spiritual perspective in this life. Uh, This preacher that I like to listen to, uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson, he would say this. Some people, uh, some te- people kind of make fun of Christians. And they say, you Christians are so heavenly minded that you're of no, what, earthly good, right? You've heard that before. But, but he would flip it and say, hey, until you are so heavenly minded, you will be of no earthly good. 
you need to have spiritual perspective. And this is what Peter writes for. This is what we want to glean from this passage. He writes from the midst of trial. Peter writes from Rome, undergoing intense trial to people that are probably not presently experiencing trials, but going to be experiencing trials. And he writes to woo and to wow them. So that's what we're doing today. We're, we're listening. We're trying to be wooed and we're trying to be wowed. We're trying to be wowed by the grace that is ours, even in the midst of trial. We're trying to be wooed. Yes, you, even in the midst of trials, to the calling to which you have been called by his grace in this life. So these trials that we experience in life will only be of spiritual good to us if we have the following three spiritual perspectives. Let me outline them for you. Spiritual perspective number one, God has set his life within you. Let that sink into your heart and your mind this morning. God has set his life within you. Now, anytime I preach, I, I am cognizant of the fact that not everybody listening to me is a believer. Now, let me just clarify here just a minute. This is a message about believers. It is. But it's not a message only for believers. Yes, it is about the Christian and their privileges and their glories, but it can be also for you. If you are an unbeliever this morning, remember, well, we talk about these glories and these privileges that the believer presently can enjoy and can even anticipate in the future. It is also a message for you. For while we're talking about these riches and about these glories, we are also talking about your true poverty. So let me be very clear to any unbelievers that may be in this room. This may be not about you, but it can still be for you. First point, God has set his life within you. How has he set his life within you? Do you see there in verse three what he says? He has caused us to be born again. And look at this. It is not that God's mercy and grace has been given to you because you grew up in a Christian home or because you attended church faithfully or even because you heard and believed the gospel message. That's not ultimate. Uh, before all of that happened, what is it? God's living hope is given to you because he decided to get his hands dirty in your business. Not only did God send his holy and precious son to live a full and perfect life, to die for sinners and to be raised again for sinners' hope, but he also sent his Holy Spirit, his holy and precious spirit into the hearts of his people to awaken us into our sinful, filthy hearts to awaken us spiritually, to make us alive and to implant life into our hearts, his very life into our hearts, and to cause us to be born again, able to receive and believe the good news about Jesus. He has caused you to be born again. This is talking about, of course, the miracle of the new birth, what theologians call regeneration. God causing you to be made alive inwardly, spiritually. Verse 22 of this same chapter talks about this. It says having 
purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again. Notice that's Peter's way of describing regeneration, uh, this new birth activity. It is referred to as this inner cleansing, this inner cleansing of desires and also a conforming of the will to a desire for obedience and which, of course, results in brotherly love. This is the new birth. All of this God did for you. God did for you. He has set his life in the presence of his Holy Spirit into your heart, into your mind, into your life. It's this Holy Spirit operating which softens and transforms you to believe the gospel as Ezekiel 36, 27 through 28 would say he is the one who took out the heart of stone and put in a soft heart into you. As Jesus himself would say in John 3, unless you are born again by the Spirit, you can't see anything of spiritual things. It is he who implanted his imperishable seed in you through his word, which is now producing life. This is God's life, and he has given it to you. He has put it inside of you. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend perhaps here, do you not hunger for that? Do you not long for that spiritual life inside of you as well? Maybe you have a soul or a will that's marked by impurity or sinful desires. Don't you long for the freedom of the life of God inside of you? That's what the Christian has, God's life inside of you. Spiritual perspective number two, not only has he set his life within you, he has set his wealth before you. He has set his wealth before you. Verse four says this, to an inheritance to an inheritance. And in the biblical world, an inheritance was critical to the future security and stability of the family. It was passed from the father to the child. Normally the firstborn son would get a double portion of the inheritance. Why? So that he could kind of care for and protect the family. It was kind of like the social security of the day. To have an inheritance would be to have family around you that, su that supports you. Matter of fact, Proverbs 13, 22 would say, it is the righteous and good father who leaves an inheritance for his children. Um, it is the wicked man who leaves nothing. There, there's something ahead of you. And this all just communicates something that you all, all know about an inheritance. It's a good thing, right? I want an inheritance. You want an inheritance. We all want an inheritance, right? It's a good thing. It's something that is, that is when, you're, when you're expecting it in the future, it brings security to your present situation. And notice how Peter describes it, verse 3, it's a living hope. It is currently, verse 4 tells us, under the guard of God in heaven. This inheritance, though, is probably best described to our kind of fallen and limited minds by what it isn't. Notice he describes it negatively. Verse 4, Peter illustrates what this inheritance is by using three alliterated adjectives. Three, three words, they all begin with this Greek letter A or alpha, 
which all serve to negate the words that come after them. It's very similar to what we do when we attach an A to the beginning of some of our words. Like when you attach A to moral, it means exactly the opposite things. And this is what he's doing in Greek, although you can't really see it there in English. These show what this inheritance isn't. And it helps us to appreciate it. It's alliterated for beauty, and it helps it to be memorable. Like, for example, where do you go? Where do you go when you need something for your bed, bath, or beyond. You go to the store because you remember, oh, that's where I get all of my supplies, all of my needs, because it's memorable, it's alliterated, right? Um, how does God describe our inheritance negatively first? You see, it is death-proof. It is death-proof. It is imperishable. It cannot be touched by death, by decay, by rot, isn't that glorious in the world we live in? It is not like those potatoes that you stockpiled last year in your closet. And now the rot from them is spreading to all the other things in your closet. It is undecaying. It is death-proof. Also, notice it is sin-proof. It is undefiled. Sin, evil, and corruption cannot touch it. It is not like that stock market. It is not like that 401k. It is not like that retirement package, which might not be there when you need it to be there because we live in a sin-soaked world. Or think about it like this. Because heaven is this way, you need to be completely changed. You, you need to have a glorified body. You need to be new before you can even enter heaven. You couldn't handle the purity and the glory of heaven unless you are changed and glorified. Heaven is sin-proof. Corruption cannot touch it. Evil cannot dwell in it. You cannot go to it unless you are transformed because you are not sin-proof. But notice this inheritance, he goes on to not only say is death-proof, sin-proof, it is also time-proof. It is unfading. It is an inheritance that is permanently lovely, permanently beautiful. It is permanently in bloom. It is not like that paint that peels it is not like those tires that wear. It is not like that t-shirt that fades or that hair that stops or that flower that fails and falls. It is time-proof. Nothing in heaven carries the ruinous, decaying effects and consequences of sin. Nothing at all. Think about what that means. You for one, don't need to be worried about being bored in heaven. It is permanently lovely, permanently beautiful, permanently excellent. And does this not expose kind of our wrong thoughts about eternity, right? We are concerned about being bored, but doesn't, doesn't it reveal something in us when we are concerned about eternal boredom. It shows us that we attach a normalcy. We, we attach an essential nature to sin in our life. Right? What will life be if things don't die, if things don't decay, if things don't change? 
That is a life that is very used to sin and can't even conceive of what life would be like without it. But you do not have to worry about being bored for eternity. You don't have to worry about not being absolutely satisfied by Jesus forever. You don't have to be worried that, hey, it might not be worth it all when I see Jesus. It will because God's holy, perfect, and inspired word tells us it is so. What is this eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance? In a sentence, it is everything that God has promised to his people in the future. It is everything. We see a promise of God's inheritance to his people throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Just one example, uh, Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, talks about our wealth as believers because of this glorious inheritance that we anticipate in the future. And it all comes to us in Christ, Ephesians 1.11. In him you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But, but what is this inheritance? Well, I mean, like, like I said, it's all over in the Bible, and you could look and you could find little snapshots of what it is and see and just rejoice in it. And to be honest, we don't have time to really talk about all of the facets of this inheritance, all of its parts. For example, we don't have time this morning to say that this inheritance is a life in a new world made right and perfect, perfect finally, as it talks about in Revelation 21 1, 5, and 10. We don't have time to talk about how this is a life of no more tears, pain, or sorrow, as it says in Revelations 21, 4. We don't have time to talk about how this inheritance is a citizenship, a citizenship, a belonging to God's kingdom, as it says in Philippians 3, 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time to talk about how this inheritance is a future hope, of the full and final deliverance from sin, as it talks about in Philippians 3.21. Who will, Jesus, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself? We don't have time to talk about how this will be a time of rewarding, like in 1 Peter 1.7, when he talks about how glory, praise, and honor The honor that belongs to Christ in one sense will also be given to us in one sense. That's what he's talking about. That's our praise from God, I see in verse 7. We also don't have time to talk about how this will be a time of revealing, how God's going to reveal all of the glorious riches of his kindness to us who believe. Ephesians 2, 7. It's one of those verses, by the way, that you should go home and read because it's like, wow, did I, have I never, have have I never read that verse before? That's like the most incredible verse I've ever read in my entire life. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says this, so that he does these things, he does these things for us in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
That is eternity. God showing you the tremendous wealth of his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. But we don't have time to talk about that. We also don't have time to talk about how this inheritance will be a time of reigning with Christ, as it says in Revelations 22.2, talking about the eternal state, actually. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And we don't have time to talk about how this inheritance is the promise of God's perfect return on all of our incurred losses and experiences in this life. Everything God is going to return and make better and give you something better for everything you lose. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. But we don't have time to talk about that. Neither do we have time to really talk about how this inheritance will be a dwelling place with God forever. Verse uh, verse 4 of Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We don't have time either then to talk about how all of this, this glorious inheritance will simply be a platform that God has purposed from eternity past for his endless praise and glory. Returning to Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why is God doing this? He's not doing this just to make you happy. He is doing this for the praise of his glory. And God, may I remind you, is not chintzy, with how he pursues his glory, right? It's, it's not like those cheaply built electronics or phones that you have in your hand, maybe right now, that are actively falling apart on you, that the manufacturer has built so that they crumble and fade and fall, so you have to buy another one. It's not like that. God has made your inheritance this way. Why? Because he wants to get as much glory from you throughout the ages for his glory. But we just really don't have time to talk about that. Sorry. Can't even sneak them on you. We could, I guess, go through that list. Or I would prefer to describe this inheritance the way Peter does. Peter has this marvelous way of saying a whole lot in a very little space. So if you like long lists, go to Paul. If you like to really explain things, go to Paul. But if you like just, man, just give me it in one verse, man, go to Peter. He has a way of saying everything really quick. For example, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, he says all of that in this one verse. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
God himself will do this. He will himself personally come to earth, set up the promised kingdom, give us glory and honor so that he may receive maximum praise, maximum glory, maximum honor. He will fulfill all of his promises. And then we see all of those words, that language overlap, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. This is just Peter's way of saying, hey, when God makes it better, he is going to make everything right beyond your wildest dreams. So dream away. It's going to be better. It's going to be marvelous, amazing. All of this to say, though, look at this. In Christ Jesus, God has set his wealth before you. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend, does this not expose your poverty, your eternal poverty, to not have this, to not have this glorious perspective, Let's look at our third perspective. He has set his life within you. He has set his wealth before you. But notice, he has also set his defense around you. He has set his defenses around you. Verse 5 talks about how, how we are guarded. This is the same word to refer to a garrison around a city which defends it against its mortal foes. That is what God is doing. Who's the who? This isn't just God's defense around the inheritance like he's defending heaven. This is around people. This is around his people. We see that in verse 5. Who? The inheritance is a who. God has put powerful defenses around his children, the children of his new birth. Your glorious salvation is not just something that God gives you and says... Uh, do your best. I hope you can handle it. I hope you can make it. And it's not like God is in heaven wringing his hands, looking down at you and saying, oh, I hope they survive. I hope they make it. My glory's kind of at stake here. God is not scared or worried that he'll lose you. And he doesn't come bursting in through those doors and says, hey, everybody, panic. Uh, trials and tribulations are coming, run, pack your bags. He is not worried at all. He has set his powerful, glorious defense around you. We see here a glorious salvation, a salvation so secure that it can be tried and tested and still come out like gold. We see here a God determined to keep his beloved to the end. We see here a God who will let no, as the song would say, force of hell, scheme of man, pluck you from his hand. We see here a picture of a fighting warrior who will defend and pursue you until his dying day with his steadfast love and faithfulness. We see here he has interests in his people and those interests are his glory and he will defend their salvation to the end. How does he guard though? You see that in verse five, through fueling faith in him. Now, some of you may quip with me. Ah, so in the end, it is really up to me. It's all hanging on me here, David. Well, 
if that's how you want to define faith, I suppose you could think about it that way. I would rather define faith as sensing and knowing and recognizing your weakness, your inward poverty, your inability to do it without God. Faith is, as the other song would say, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. That is what faith is. It is emptiness, it is weakness, coming to God, seeking his strength, holding fast to his power and his security to control you. I love the way uh, Spurgeon illustrates this. I tell people all the time, I'm, you never go wrong, quoting or illustrating with Spurgeon, never go wrong. He, faith is this way, he says, faith is like a small cord connecting you to something powerful and firm, pulling you to safety. And he illustrates this point through this story of these two men who are being swept down this river. And as they're being swept down this torrent and river, there is a waterfall, a deadly waterfall at the end of the river, and this river is pulling them to destruction. And then, from seemingly nowhere, a man comes through the brush and he happens to have this cord with him. How did he know to come at this time? How did he know to bring that rope with him today? And how did he happen to just arrive at the moment of need? And how is it that he throws that rope and the two men are able to grab on and now, though they are struggling through the water, water splashing in their face, they are safe and being pulled into the shore side. They're both struggling but safe until one of the men sees a log, a big, thick log, maybe with some sticks po pointed out of it, floating down. And as he's holding on to this cord, he sees that log and he's like, that seems just as secure as this cord. Matter of fact, I think I'd be more comfortable with that log than with this cord. And he jumps on and he's very content. And the other man is left to struggle. Spurgeon would say, the man who jumps on that log is like the man who trusts in himself, in his works. But faith, though it may seem to be like a slender cord, is in the hands of the great God on the shore side. Infinite power pulls in the connecting line and thus draws the man from destruction. Oh, the blessedness of faith because it unites us to God. Both men have faith. But what really matters is what your faith is connected to. Infinite power pulls in his beloved to the shore side. Now, really quick, he has set his powerful defense around you. You are held firm and safe despite the raging torrent around you. You are surrounded. You are pulled in by infinite power. That is the power of faith. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend, do not those deadly, terrifying falls terrify you into soberness for your soul. 
Jesus would say this, Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But then Matthew 27, verse 26 says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now see this, we've seen these three spiritual perspectives that you must have if you want to be of spiritual good. These spiritual perspectives give endurance and even joy and rejoicing in your moment of trial. Now, I have a preacher confession to make. I have one more. I'm sorry. I didn't want to tell you four, because then you'd think I was lame, because every sermon needs to have three. I've got one more. You could call it a bonus point. It is the vital piece, though. It is the last and final piece. It is the motor, motivator beneath it all. It is the cause of the causer. It is my favorite point. It is the great joy to the sinner's heart this morning, if they will receive it. Spiritual perspective number four, not only has God set his life within you, his wealth before you, his defenses around you, but God, very God, has set his mercy upon you. He set his mercy upon you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He doesn't save you because you've impressed him so much. He doesn't save you because you've worked really hard. He doesn't save you because you endured a hard trial and kept coming to church through a pandemic. He doesn't save you because you came from the right family or from the right ethnic group. He doesn't save you for any of these reasons. He doesn't save you because you've come a long way in sanctification and fighting against sin. He doesn't even save you because of your faith, because of your belief, because of your repentance. Ultimately, God saves you because of his great mercy. Great. This is something that is large. Large in quantity, large in vastness. It's expansive, it's abundant, as the King James would tell you. It is boundless, as the NLT will tell you. Ephesians 1.3 says, God who is rich in mercy. Mercy. I love that word. I need that word so much in my life. This is action towards someone done precisely because they are so miserable. That is what mercy is. The focus of the word is on the miserableness of the object. I'm doing this for you because you are pitiful, because you have nothing to offer to God spiritually. 
Not only that, it, also, it is also a miserableness that is often undeserved, meaning God is kind to people when he didn't have to be kind. God is kind towards enemies and he's kind towards sinners that he should have passed by. Two examples of this, right? Lot should have been left in Sodom to die. God should have said to Lot, well, that's on you, man. I warned you, I told you, follow me, and you just crept closer and closer to Sodom. That's on you. God should have left him there, but what does Genesis 19, 16 tell us? He showed mercy to Lot. And all of those blind and lame and deaf leopards in Jesus' day, he didn't actually have to heal, right? He could have accomplished his mission on earth, dying on the cross without actually healing. Now those miracles served a purpose, of course. They kind of give you snapshots of the glory of his kingdom where everything is going to be healed. But Jesus didn't have to do that. But God showed mercy. It's, it's two words, two words in Ephesians 2 that totally explain the gospel to you this morning, but God, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. God should have left you to be dead in your trespasses of sin. You had nothing, nothing to bring to him, but he showed mercy towards you. And you can hold fast to that mercy by faith. Not in what you do, but in what God has done for you in Christ Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. That is the mercy of God. This is the reason God saves anyone. He purposes to glorify his great name by saving helpless sinners like you, like me, and destine them for eternal treasures. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend. Would you ask this God, what must I do to inherit salvation? He tells you, Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Right now, in the quietness and the, the solitude and the silence of your heart, what does that look like? It looks like you saying, God, I am a miserable sinner. Can you be merciful to me? You making yourself as miserable as you can before your holy God and saying, not because of what I have done, but because of Christ has done, do I cling to salvation? For he is merciful to the miserable who acknowledge their sin. These are the spiritual perspectives you must have if you want to get the most out of any season of trial in your life. Right? We don't want to just be, we don't want to be just Christians in America who try to avoid problems. We want to be God's people who seek to get the most out of trials and trouble. 
not for our glory, but for his and for our greater rejoicing in heaven. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.